so good to see each of you here tonight. Thank you for being here. I know you're here for the fried chicken primarily and then Parker and Bryant secondarily, but I'm so thankful that you're here tonight. Uh, I still can't get over how nice everybody has been to me. I know at some point that runs out, but I'm going to enjoy it as long as it lasts. And uh, y'all have been so kind. I keep thinking somebody else named Jonathan must be about to walk up here on stage as nice as everybody's been. But I'm going to enjoy it and I'm going to, I'm going to, it's an honor and a privilege to get a chance uh, to share with you tonight. I love the Gospels. Uh, because they really preach themselves and I can get out of the way and we can just look into the face of Jesus and enjoy it. And so tonight, would you turn with me to the gospel of Luke chapter three? We're going to be there in just a moment. If you weren't here last week, we began in our study of Luke's gospel by leaving the Christmas passages to when we get closer to the holidays, but starting in Luke three and seeing uh, Jesus's initial uh, stepping into uh, some areas of his role and, and what would be upcoming, but then also tonight coming to the place where we're going to read about a man named John the Baptist and then his uh, continued call. Well, really, last week was focused almost entirely on John the Baptist, and when you think about John the Baptist, you see a few things that are really uh, important for us to start at. And so uh, when, we, when we look at John the Baptist, we see this great setting of the stage of humility. Now, now, as far as a couple pieces of housekeeping, if anybody needs a handout, wow, praise the Lord, we only got three left. That means there's a lot of people here tonight. If you need them, I, they're going for $20 a pop because we only got a few left, but I'll hand them back out here. Let me pass them on here. Brother Ted, there we go. Is that my wallet? Oh, okay, great. It's, I have never had the experience in church where I made a joke about money and somebody was willing to give me any. That's great. You know, we see John the Baptist, and I think one of the things that stands out about John the Baptist, not only that he understood more about Jesus than anyone else seemingly understood about Jesus during his earthly ministry, but also this great just picture of humility. Don't we see that just in a wonderful way through John the Baptist? I remember many years ago being involved in, uh, in the church where I previously served where there was a contemporary service that was begun and I got to be involved with helping to lead the music. Now I love the job that Parker and Bryant do and so I'm not nowhere close to their level and so we got a chance to step into that and, uh, and to do that and it was exciting. I love getting a chance to play music but I can remember all of us gathering around in one of those first few services where we were trying to get the music right and the technology right and all that. And I remember getting to pray for the group and I prayed something along these lines. Lord, will you just help to humble us today so that we can be uh, in your presence? And so I remember praying that line, would you help to humble us? We got to the service and the technology failed, the music was in the wrong key and one thing after another, it just set forth. And after that, our band always jokingly said, from now on, we're praying, Lord, please make us superstars uh, today. <laughs> we're never again praying to be humbled. Isn't it amazing that John the Baptist, not only in John's gospel says he must increase, but what else does he say? I must decrease. Yeah. Seeing the Lord increase is one of those great things, but we don't get too excited about seeing ourselves decrease. John the Baptist willingly gave over all that he had done because all of it was in preparation for people's focus to be turned to the Lord Jesus. What an incredible ministry that he had. 
He was the Billy Graham of his day in many ways, and he just gave it all away and pointed others to Jesus because he realized that he himself uh, was not the main event. Now, before we dive into this too much further, let me make one announcement here as well. There are two to three spots uh, left. Well, there's more than that, but there's a need for at least two to three more folks to attend in Pennsylvania uh, with our, is it Young at Heart? Have I got that right, Daniel? I'm still learning the terminology. But with Young at Heart going to Amish country up there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, September 22nd through 24th, they're in need of a few more folks to jump on board that trip. If you'd like more information, see Daniel at some point or give our church office a call. I want to make sure to make that plug uh, as well. They're going to see the story of David, uh, performance being put on, a number of things that will be exciting. And so I know you'll want to get a chance if you're not involved. And I don't think you even have to be uh, a senior adult. You can make it in if you're, if you're even somewhere, anywhere close, even if you're just a senior at heart, uh, you can jump into that. So um, see Daniel if you want more information in that. G- uh, Luke chapter 3. Let's look there, and I'd like for us to look beginning in verse 15 tonight. Luke chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison." Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for a chance to be reminded in such a wonderful way through worship of how great our God is. And Lord, in so many ways, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, Lord, we want somehow for you to increase while we increase as well. And so, Lord, for the ways that you would call us to step back in humility and to bring our focus and to draw others' focus towards you, Lord, however you'd challenge us and encourage us with your truth tonight. However, you'd call us not only to the example of John the Baptist in humility, but in the ways that you would call us in worship to the example of the Lord Jesus. And in all that he carried and resisted and stood firm through the midst of for our sake. Father, would you enlighten us in that way tonight, remind us of things perhaps that many of us already know, and birth in us not only the expectation of your presence but a desire to see your name continue to be made great in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. John the Baptist has just come off of the heels of giving uh, not only incredible sermons, but incredible teaching and seeing incredible response from people. And he begins in this passage to turn his focus 
to preparing people specifically for the Lord Jesus. And we see some really neat ways that that happens. I had a few pictures to show you last week. I'm going to go through these a little bit today. I don't know about you, but winnowing forks and threshing floors aren't things that I normally have a big perspective on. So let me try to guide you into a little bit that uh, tonight. This is a picture from an image that's a few decades old of this practice where there would be a threshing floor where you got the grain and the chaff and somebody would come in with a fork. They'd throw this up in the air. I'm sure a lot of you probably know this already, but the wind would blow the chaff away and the grain would fall back down. So this process of weeding out the chaff and having it blow away. And so John the Baptist makes this connection with Jesus to say he's doing this, that what he's doing in in the process of his ministry and even that's begun with John the Baptist is beginning to separate uh, those who the Lord is calling and those who are seeking the Lord uh, from those who are not. And so there's this separation point that's coming. You can see here, that's what the threshing floor looks like. If you're a little bit further uh, above it, able to look down. And so John, using this imagery, Uh, is saying that Jesus is coming to do just that. And he makes this great statement, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John the Baptist, the greatest religious figure of his day, uh, saying I'm not worthy to untie or to tie up Jesus' shoes. What a great statement that he makes. I want to give you a few points. You got your hand out here tonight. I do have some blanks on those because I always find for myself, if I can have something to write down, that helps me stay with whoever I'm listening to. That's why uh, for many of us, for years when we got church bulletins, when we got out of the service, all the B's and all the D's and all the zeros were colored in, weren't they? I'll, I'll pass that along to the pastor, but you know, you, something to do with your hands. And so I'm not trying to test you here tonight. I'm just trying to give you a little bit of easier point of staying with me. So if you want to listen for those words, we can kind of walk through that. But you got a few blanks there to fill in. And uh, if you, you want to get them from your neighbors later, if you miss any, I don't think you're going to have too tough of a time gathering those. But the first thing that I've got there for you is what we see in the very first verse of our passage tonight. And that's this, that repentance and drawing closer to the Lord births expectancy in us. Repentance and drawing closer to the Lord births expectancy in us. Our school is about to begin here next week. HPCA is going to have the classes resume next week. The teachers uh, are gathering and there's all this expectation. Keith's in here somewhere, got that glorious expectancy of uh, what's about to take place. And I think from, uh, from myself, some many years ago, taking part in being a teacher myself in, in the public school system, sometimes the most expectant time of the year is right before school starts. Sometimes it gets a little tougher once those students actually get there. But you feel really expectant, you know, and there's this looking ahead. And John the Baptist has been doing the work of preparing the way of the Lord. And we come to verse 15 and it says this, as the people were in expectation... Now, not only does that mean that they were in expectation that the Messiah was coming, but the fruit of the repentance that had taken place in their life is that they were now expectant for what the Lord would do. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you think that there are some wonderful things that can happen in a church environment when all of a sudden people who have drawn close to the Lord begin to ask the question, I wonder what God wants to do now in, my, in the midst of where I'm at. I wonder what God's plans are for my life. I wonder what God wants to see done in the the avenues that I'm involved in. There was this expectancy. I, I love that word and that concept, and we see it in the Bible continually. The closer we've drawn to the Lord, 
I believe often he's going to make our lives more expectant to see what he's going to do. Isn't it great that we're not just called to hang out and fellowship until we get to heaven, that there's, God's actually got plans uh, that are taking place now, purposes that he's called us into. Repentance and drawing closer to the Lord births expectancy in us. And so John the Baptist goes on to say who Jesus is going to be. We see even more of this in, in John's gospel from what he relays, as I mentioned before, where John uh, the Baptist is going to say he must increase and I must decrease. And we get all this when he says it here in Luke that uh, Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. We got a chance to have baptisms uh, on, on Sunday, this last Sunday. It's always such an exciting time. I know uh, as I've been in ministry a number of years, sometimes getting to sit down with children who are about to be baptized and try to explain what's going to happen. You get all sorts of interesting concepts of what might happen that day when they get baptized. Well, when I go under the water, all my sins are going to be washed away. Well, not by the water. That's not what's going to happen. Or I'm going to go into the water, I'm going to come back out, and I'm never going to do anything wrong again. Well, no, that's not right at all. We'll go ahead and fix that now. We recognize any of us who are, who are pastors or, or lay people, anybody involved in a baptism knows there's nothing supernatural that we bring to the table. What's supernatural is the person that we're pointing to. Amen. That everything that's been accomplished in Christ is the basis and the standard uh, for what we see in baptism. And so interestingly enough, what it must have been like for John the Baptist to see Jesus approaching and to know, I'm about to baptize the Savior. Now, you might remember from reading other Gospels that John's a bit reluctant to baptize Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus says, well, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And so John the Baptist agrees. I, I bet if Brandon were to get up here, he could tell some stories about some baptisms. He weren't sure, wasn't sure how it was going to go. I've had a few baptisms. I wasn't sure how it was going to go. I said, I don't know. This dude's pretty big. I'm not sure I'm going to get him back out of the water. <laughs> I, I've had a few. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. I had one one time where a lady was convinced. She told me all week long, I'm going to fall when I get in there. I know I'm going to fall. And you're not going to fall. Just be careful. We came to baptism night. She fell right in the water. You, know, you never know what you're going to get. But in an entirely different reason or for different purposes, imagine how humbling it must have been for John the Baptist to know that he was going to baptize Jesus. And it's interesting as Jesus is baptized He's baptized for very few of the reasons that we take part in baptism. It's just a completely different picture in so many ways. The second question I've got in here is a question that sometimes I've been asked through the years. Why did Jesus get baptized? And I've got a run-on sentence here. Uh, school hadn't started yet, Keith, so y'all give me a bit of a break here. But to set a standard and identify with and be an example for his followers. Jesus got baptized and Jesus himself hadn't trusted in his own death, burial, and resurrection that hadn't happened yet. And when we get baptized, we're trusting and picturing that just as Jesus was buried and was raised again, so we in Christ have trusted in what he's done. And so Jesus didn't get baptized for that purpose specifically, except to look forward to what was coming. Jesus didn't come into the water and say, well, I'm getting baptized to show that my sins have been forgiven. Why? Because he didn't have any sins to be forgiven. You and I even imagine what that must be like to go into the baptismal pool innocent. I got, very, I, I got baptized as a young child and I couldn't even do that at that age. And so Jesus in baptism is not himself 
showing what's happened. When we, when we get baptized, we're not only picturing that we've trusted in Christ who was buried and was raised, we're picturing the fact that we who were once dead have been made alive, that we were lost and what was old has now been washed away and all things have been made new and we get that great symbolism and Jesus doesn't have the need in his own personal life to show that. And so why does Jesus get baptized? Well, for several reasons. Number one, to set a standard for all those who would come later to fulfill all righteousness, to say to, to walk the path of faith is to take part in, uh, in showing publicly the decision that's made on the inside. And so Jesus is setting a standard for all of us to follow. He's identifying with us. You know, we don't get the chance to take part in too many things that Jesus took part in in a way that we can feel that kind of uh, companionship with him. Jesus is identifying with us in baptism, though he himself didn't need it. Uh, he is taking part and to be an example for his followers so that we would follow in, in the midst of what he had done. There's so many differences between Jesus and us, but he gets baptized in order to point us uh, in the direction of what it's going to mean to follow him and picturing even then what was going to come uh, ahead. And the second thing is what we see at the end of the passage we read earlier, for God the Father to affirm and commission the start of Jesus's earthly ministry. For God the Father to affirm and commission the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. I read a story some years ago in a, in a uh, publication called Bits and Pieces from the early 90s. It was a Spanish story of a father and his adult son who had become estranged. And they quit talking to each other and the son actually ran away. And uh, he didn't have, know anywhere where to find him. And finally, the father, after months of searching, got so de desperate, he went to the closest big city, which was Madrid in Spain, and he put an article in the newspaper. And he said simply this, Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me by the fountain in the town square this Saturday at 9 a.m. With love, your father. The article goes on to say that 800 Pacos showed up <laughs> that Saturday to find reconciliation with their father that they love. What does that mean? That means there's something written on the core of us that the attachment of being affirmed by your father is something we hold very important. Jesus comes out of the waters, and I love the language that's used in Mark's gospel. It says that the heavens were torn open, and the Holy Spirit descending as a dove in bodily form comes upon the Lord Jesus. And then we hear this voice, and in Mark and Luke, we, we gain a part of that that helps us know not only was it said objectively, this is my son, but here in Luke and also we read in Mark that God the Father speaks down to his son to say, you are my son who I love or my beloved son with you, I'm well pleased. What a great example. If God the Father could affirm his son who from our perspective wouldn't need it. He's, he's God himself as well. He doesn't need that affirmation. How much more do we need the encouragement and affirmation of other people in our lives? And God the Father affirms his son, not only for Jesus' sake, but for the sake of all those who were hearing and listening. It wouldn't be the last time that he did this uh, in the Gospels, or at least an affirmation from heaven publicly. God the Father affirms and commissions the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so Jesus comes out of the water. We, we, as I mentioned before, you get this language of the heavens were opened. You see this in Luke. 
you see this kind of language in the book of Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, where Ezekiel gains a vision from the Lord and the heavens were opened. You see it uh, in the book of Acts when Stephen is able to look up and see Jesus standing by the, by the side of God the Father. You see it when Peter has a vision of a sheet where all those things that we like to eat that Jewish people don't eat, we can go get so thankful for that we didn't have to lose them all when we came to faith in Christ. And, and Peter sees this great vision of a sheet that the heavens were opened. And so there's this way in which God is communicating specially and majestically to humanity. And the gospel sort of bookend in that way that the heavens are torn open in the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry and God's declaring his affirmation over Jesus. And so you see this great tearing at the beginning and then you see this great tearing at the end, don't you? Because as Jesus cries out, it is finished, the temple veil is torn from top to bottom. And so there's this great tearing from heaven that happens on both sides of Jesus's earthly ministry. And then Luke takes us right to the most exciting place he could take us next, doesn't he? The genealogy. <laughs> now Luke waits, and he includes it in Luke chapter 3. He didn't include those chapter numbers. They were added later. But if you've ever given somebody a New Testament and you say, well, I'd love for you to read this and, you know, just really see what Jesus is all about, one of the things you might be able to tell them is you might want to just skip over the genealogy at the very start if, you, if it starts to weigh you down. Because sure enough, when they open that New Testament, they come to Matthew's gospel first. Matthew chapter one is, of course, a genealogy at the very beginning. Luke waits for that, and he doesn't simply go back to Abraham like Matthew does. He goes all the way back to Adam. And he gives a full uh, rendering of, of, uh, of Jesus' genealogy, his, his, his lineage. Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. About. This literally means Jesus was in his 30s. And so it's, we're a time-obsessed people. And the ancient world and, and the Middle Eastern world was not anywhere near where we were. And so for him to say he was in his 30s uh, was significant enough uh, for Luke to be able to give. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, one of the things that I'll, I can't help if I get a kind of angle like this is I have to sort of speak into some of these interesting pieces. So I'm going to do that just as quickly as I can tonight. I'm not going to read the genealogy to you. But one thing that's interesting when you start to read these names is right after Joseph's name, you've got a different name listed than you do in Matthew's gospel. And so the question then becomes, how is that? And why is that? And what does that mean? And I've given you two things here on your page for where most people tend to come down. And I'll let Pastor Brandon may have to sort out anything I'm about to say, and he has the right to do that, depending on how he feels. But you come to this list and you say, well, how is it that you've got a different name listed? Most people fall into one of two camps. And so let me mention this and just you, you kind of decide for yourself. Just like Pastor Brandon's mentioned on his sermons on Revelation, these are not, you're not going to get into heaven moments in the Bible. This is a point to have an opinion and for folks to disagree or agree and, and go with that from there. But you come to that and most people fall into one of two camps. Number one, that if Joseph's father is the man listed here, this man Heli in verse 23, that that meant that Joseph was perhaps a child from what was called a leveret marriage. His mother was a childless widow when she married her husband's half-brother. Now, I know that seems like some gymnastics there, doesn't it? Let me try to explain that. So, whenever Joseph's mother 
got married to her first husband, he perhaps passed away before there could be any children that was produced through that marriage. And so in Jewish law, she would then be married off to, her bro- to uh, his brother or perhaps his stepbrother in this case. And then that heir would then, or that, that brother or stepbrother would be able to produce children for the sake of his brother. And they could be traced back in either way that legally or genealogically, they could come from either side to say, well, this is technically this person's child or another. Do you remember the story of Judah and his sons in the book of Genesis, where you, you meet this guy named Onan, whose brother dies. And so Judah says, well, okay, now your brother's wife is going to become yours, Onan, and you're going to have children so that that lineage of your brother will not be broken. And they'll technically be his children, but you'll be, you know, producing heirs in that way. Uh, with her. Odin doesn't want to do that. He's interested in the intimacy side, but he doesn't want to have children. And so God puts him to death as well. But you see that in that pattern of the, the, the Jewish law that would say, okay, well, if, if a widow has died, child, her husband has died childless, then they can produce heirs in that way. And so in that way, it would explain how you could trace it through one of two men. Uh, if both of these here, uh, if both Matthew and Luke are giving men who were seen as Joseph's father. Y'all still tracking with me yet? I'm going to lose you. Or some of you going, maybe we shouldn't have come here the first night. I don't know. (laughs) Are you still with me? That's one of two possibilities. I get into this kind of stuff. You'll have to forgive me. We're almost done. The second option that that is honestly the place where I fall, uh, where I tend to lean, is that the list that is here in Luke is actually Mary's genealogy. And the reason that I tend to fall there is, is several fold. As Luke says in verse 23, or yes, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, when you say as was supposed, that's a nice way of saying, but it wasn't, or but he wasn't of Joseph. And so in a line, who then is the next logical person to go to if Joseph is not Jesus's biological father? Well, to my mind, it's the man who is the next in lineage or Mary's father. Luke obviously doesn't give Mary's name in this way, but the entire focus of chapters one and two for Luke has been Mary's perspective, Mary's lineage, Mary's family. And the third reason that I feel that way is because if you were to compare this list, you can do this later for fun, you know, nighttime reading, If you're to go home and compare the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, what you'll also find is you'll find a last set of common names between Luke 3 and Matthew 1 in between the time of people you know in the Old Testament and the time where uh, Joseph and and these that are listed are, the, the, the earlier lineage. The last common ancestor between the two lists in Luke 3 and Matthew 1 is somebody that if you were to look down a few lines, you would see Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Now, I know lots of you had Zerubbabels in your you know, grade school classes when you were growing up. That's a Jewish name that a lot of folks have passed along into American society. We don't know a lot of Zerubbabels. But that's actually somebody who is in one of the prophetic books, the book of Haggai. Now, if you don't know, the book of Haggai was about the rebuilding of the temple and coming back from the exile and promises that were given to the Jewish people when they re-entered Jerusalem and they were devastated. 
So you read the book of Haggai, and Haggai is saying things like, do any of you remember this house in its former glory? You can kind of picture the people standing around going, we came back to just rubble, and that was it. But one of the promises that's in that book speaks to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and the Lord says, you're going to be the signet ring for what's to come. Now, I believe one of the ways in which that prophecy could have been fulfilled, and and I tend to believe that's how it was fulfilled, is that the last common ancestor between Mary and Joseph was Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. And so that's my own opinion, and you're welcome to disagree with me, but I took you down a side street. You may not have wanted to go, and we can come back in now. Now, I'm going to tell you something maybe you'll be excited about. Let's skip over the rest of the genealogy. You can save your questions for Pastor Brandon afterwards. And let's go to uh, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and let's begin with verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and all their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple And said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. A couple last points for you here tonight. Isn't it amazing that on the heels of a great spiritual moment, that God's plan for Jesus was to be tested by the devil. Because you see this here, that it's not the devil that leads Jesus out into the wilderness. What does the text say? Led by the Spirit to the place of testing. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. A couple more pictures for you. You can see here the area of the Jordan River that um, was further south near the region of Jericho and and Jerusalem where perhaps if Jesus was further south, it doesn't give us context for exactly where John the Baptist was baptizing in this passage. Could have been an area that looks somewhat like this. But then you come to the wilderness. I think I showed you all this uh, picture last week. I like to go camping. I don't want to go camping there. I'm usually a one or two night camper. 40 days into the wilderness. We don't know exactly which wilderness, but this is the Judean wilderness that's west of Jericho. You can see here a more close-up picture. One more if you want one. I mean, just imagine what 40 days in an area like that would make you feel, you know, what, what that would bring you to. I know how, uh, uh, how short I can get after I've missed one meal. Jesus goes into the wilderness and for 40 days uh, is fasting, praying, and being tempted. 
Now, we're told of three temptations by the devil. It doesn't necessarily mean that there were only three, but it does seem to speak to in the text that for 40 days, Jesus was fighting a a, a battle. Jesus was facing temptation from the devil. And so number four, what I've got on your sheet tonight, Jesus led by the spirit into the wilderness reminds us of the testing of so many in the Old Testament. And Jesus came to pass the test that all others have failed. Jesus came to pass the test that all others have failed. Do you know that often in the Bible when we see the number 40, it's a number of testing? That you remember that Noah and his family placed on the ark, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and they were on the ark a lot longer than 40 days and 40 nights but the rain kept falling and the water kept rising for 40 days and 40 nights and that was that time where they were probably thinking, I wonder if it's ever gonna stop raining. For 40 days and 40 nights, that testing continued. You see with Moses that he's on Mount Sinai for 40 days with the Lord. And there's things that the Lord is teaching him in that and calling him to. Uh, And then even then when he comes off of that mountain, you know the episode with the golden calf. And so there's a testing not only for Moses, but for the Israelites who are at the base of that mountain. You see Elijah after the great victory in 1 Kings 18, running for his life in 1 Kings 19. And he lays under a broom tree and begs the Lord to kill him so that his life will end. And it's then in that 40 days that the Lord ministers to him and brings him along and asks him that gentle question, what are you doing here, Elijah, to bring him back into his ministry? And you see the Israelites unwilling to follow Joshua and Caleb into the promised land who then wander for how long? 40 years until that older generation passes away. And so 40 is a number you see again and again. And interestingly enough, every time we see someone tested in that number used in the Old Testament, ultimately they failed the test, didn't they? Noah was taken as the most righteous person and the most righteous family, and God started the human race over again with Noah. Do you realize that? I remember when I was in middle school, there was a poster that was hanging in our locker room. I believed that I was going to be an NBA basketball player at that point. I was the only one, but there was a poster. When you came into our locker room, it said, hey, kids, remember, only one in 500,000 high school basketball players make the NBA. And so God began to use that to draw me down into reality just bit by bit. Think of how statistically impossible. Isaiah Thomas, a famous basketball player, said, the chances of making the NBA are like the chances of walking through the Amazon jungle without getting bit by a mosquito. You're just not going to do it. But imagine the statistics of what it was like for Noah and his family to be saved from an entire civilization of humanity, and all the rest were destroyed. Where do we find Noah the chapter after they arrived back on dry ground? Exposed, drunk, embarrassed. Elijah, as I've already said, comes off the greatest victory of seeing God move and instantly he's moved to despair and to fear and runs away for his life even after what God had done. He certainly didn't pass the test. The Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai while God is dealing in thunder and smoke and fire uh, with Moses, they, they turn away and are willing to you know, turn their worship over to a golden calf. The Israelites for 40 years don't pass a test, they just die off and then are allowed to go in. A phrase that a man named Tim Keller, who's probably a pastor known to some of you, a Presbyterian pastor, at least from my understanding, he's made famous, is the concept of Jesus as the true and better Israel. 
that he is the true and better for so many that we see in the Old Testament, so many failings that others could not accomplish. Jesus was the one who came to be the true and better fulfillment of uh, what did not happen uh, under others. And so for 40 days, Jesus is tested and tested and tested and tested, and he passes the test. How amazing is that? The Lord Jesus did what none of us could do. Jesus came to pass the test that all others have failed. Number five, Satan's temptation of Jesus is designed to attack his physical strain. He's hungry to tempt him to gain the quick approval of those who would reject him and ultimately to give him a way to bypass the cross. And Jesus withstands all these temptations and our redemption was made possible. This is a model of the early temple complex uh, in that time for the second temple period. This is uh, Herod's temple from the best that they can gather from the archaeology and otherwise that they know. And so you'd see here in the middle what we would technically refer to as the temple itself and then this gated area, this compound that would just simply be the temple compound itself, the courts of the temple uh, and otherwise. And so there's some question as to whether the place where Satan caused Jesus to stand and to look down was the top of the temple, perhaps here, and there's others who believe that it could have been the corner of this temple compound, which had a very steep drop-off of it uh, down into the Kidron Valley below. We don't know for sure, but it was a very high place where there would have been people gathered down below one way or the other. And so Satan's temptation becomes to Jesus to say, why don't you cast yourself down and show once and for all that you are who you claim to be so that right off the bat in your ministry, people have a great reason to believe who you are. And so the temptation that Satan comes with is, here's what you ought to do to gain the approval of people right away. Now, I don't know about you, but it's never been easy for me to not have the approval of people. In life, you sort of learn how to navigate when you don't have it. But isn't it just wonderful when people applaud and just think you're wonderful and, and all those kind of things? They hadn't got to know you quite well enough yet to say, well, maybe not that wonderful. But, uh, but, you, but you get, you know, it's so easy to say, I'd much rather have approval than rejection. I'd much rather have belief than unbelief. Jesus knows exactly all of the people who are going to reject him, to scorn him, to ridicule him. And so Satan comes in just a moment to say, here's a moment for you to fulfill the scripture and to do this in such a way, cast yourself down because you know the Lord's going to protect you. Think of all these people who are going to be standing in the temple courts praying and what more miraculous way to draw them to be in your supporters than to prove before all of them that God's got your back. And Jesus says, no. Quotes the scripture back to him to say, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, earlier, Jesus being hungry, Satan comes to him and says, why don't you just go ahead and make one of these rocks bread? Go ahead and have something to eat. It's time. Jesus, knowing that's not the Lord's will either, quotes that same uh, uh, passage, probably the most well-known quotation uh, that is in this passage uh, to say, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That scripture goes on to say, but by every word that comes from the Lord. And so Jesus is calling himself to that great truth. Now, that's an easy verse to quote when you're not hungry, isn't it? 
I don't know how many of you would have really enjoyed that kind of, if I, we'd have came in here tonight and said, guys, we weren't serious about that fried chicken. We're just all going to have Bible study in here tonight. Man shall not live by chicken alone. I don't know how many amens we would have got from that. It's easy to amen when we've had something to eat. But Jesus being hot, being hungry, and otherwise gives up on his own physical needs in order to follow what the Lord has for him. And that's not always easy. Being inconvenienced and being sacrificed ourselves from what we would want. Jesus does just that. And then the third, and, and what I believe the most important in some ways, sort of the scope of everything. You, you've got a picture of an artist's rendition on your handout of this tonight that, uh, that Satan gives Jesus a window into all the kingdoms of the world, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, not because there's a mountain in Israel that can see everywhere geographically. I think there was something, uh, you know, some way in which Satan is... is uh, supernatural, for lack of a better word, you know, showing the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. And so this is verse 5, and the devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, as a kid, I, I think in, in looking through this story and perhaps even many years afterwards, this doesn't seem like an incredibly hard thing to turn down. It took quite some time for me to wade into some of the gravity of what Satan is offering Jesus. Satan, for all the ways that we try to think of him as ignorant or foolish, he, he's not. And he understands enough to know that Jesus has come in order to be able to purchase the world back from the throes, the clutches of Satan himself. He understands enough to know what Jesus is after are the souls of people here on the earth. And so Satan stands before the Lord Jesus. And in essence, he says this to him. Everything that you came for, I will give you if you'll bypass the cross. All the purposes and all the things that you are here for, I've got an easier road for you to take, and I'll give it to you all now. All you got to do is bow down and worship me, and that's it. The struggle that Jesus faces in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you want to call it a struggle, the agony and the, the understanding of that decision and what it will cost him begins far before that. And even here in the wilderness, Jesus is facing that same decision. Am I willing to follow the purposes of my Father? And am I willing to pursue the redemption of mankind, even if it means the cross? And by God's grace, the answer is yes. Amen. Jesus doesn't say, well, I'll just take the, 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 the goal that I have, even if the means change. Our redemption depended completely on Jesus saying, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Even if it means the cross. Even if it means the rejection of people who should believe. Even if it means there'll be those uh, who, who ridicule, who scorn me, or, or whatever else that might mean. Jesus constantly in his time here on earth, particularly in his earthly ministry, was consciously choosing the cross on our behalf. Aren't you thankful? 
And so for us tonight, if you want to have some personal application, take it on the front side, the humiliation or the humbling of John the Baptist to say, it's all about him and it's not about me, should be the attitude of our hearts. And as we examine the gospel, we have to say again and again, Lord, thank you that Jesus at his worst is better than me at my best. When he hasn't eaten for 40 days, when he's facing the constant fighting of Satan coming against him, he still passes the test with flying colors again and again and again, what nobody else could do. So may he increase while we decrease. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is far more than we could ever ask, imagine, or understand. And Father, we thank you that he chose the cross even before the wilderness, that the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world knew all along what it would cost him, and he loved and pursued us anyway. And so, Lord, may that make him to increase in our hearts and in our lives. And so, God, would you do this work because only you can. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.